Away With Words, a Portsmouth Poetry Podcast. Remembering Robert Graves, a Portsfest 2021 event with Stuart Aleska, who, as a young man, met the poet in New Yorker. Robert Graves was born in 1895 of German-Irish heritage. His mother was Amelie Elizabeth Sophie von Ranker, the niece of the historian Leopold von Ranker, and his father, Alfred Percival Graves, was a teacher, poet, and a key figure in the Gaelic revival. Graves led a charmed life, surviving double pneumonia as a child, and was expected to die from injury to his lungs in World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. He was a friend of the poets Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Bridges, John Macefield, who was his landlord at Oxford, Edmund Blunden, Gilbert Murray, T.E. Lawrence, and Wilfred Owen. He and Sassoon encouraged Owen to write. Graves intervened in Sassoon's court-martial following Sassoon's refusal to serve under incompetent leaders. This led to their meeting with Wilfred Owen in the progressive Craig Lockhart Military Hospital in Edinburgh, being treated for what was then called shell shock. Sassoon mentored Owen and persuaded him not to give up writing, and Graves critiqued Owen's poems from the front. He served in both world wars despite prejudice in the army because of his German origins. His first poems were published from the Western Front in 1916 and he was one of the first poets to write of the realities of war in the trenches. In Goodbye to All That, his autobiography, there is a startling image in which he describes seeing a pair of boots with the feet still in them, the soldier wearing them having been blown to pieces. He was bisexual with several homosexual relationships in his youth. From 1964, Graves became great friends with Spike Milligan after meeting him on a TV show and their ten-plus years of correspondence have been published, an insight into both of these remarkable men. Graves had a long relationship with Wales, went to a prep school in Penracht, in Carnarvon, North Wales. He served with the 3rd Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers in World War I. His poem, A Dead Bosch, resulted from the Battle of Mammoth's Wood, where Welsh soldiers were needlessly slaughtered. A Dead Bosch To you who read my songs of war and only hear of blood and fame, I'll say, you've heard it said before, war's hell. And if you doubt the same, today I found in Mamet's wood a certain cure for lust of blood. Where, propped against a shattered trunk, in a great mess of things unclean, sat a dead Bosch. He scowled and stunk with clothes and face a sodden green, big-bellied, spectacled, crop-haired, dribbling black blood from nose and beard. His personal recollections of the Great War, goodbye to all that, lost him several close friends, including Sassoon, and he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of his life. He coined the term modernist to describe the poetry of Eliot, Auden and Spender. Despite his long association with and love of Wales, he was critical of Dylan Thomas poetry and less than encouraging when Thomas, a teenager, 
sent him some poems. Graves wrote, I never met Thomas, but when he was 16, he sent me from Swansea a batch of his early poems. I wrote back that they were irreproachable, but that he would eventually learn to dislike them. Young poets stumble and make a thousand clumsy errors, and though one may hope or guess that they will be something in the end, there is only promise, not performance. Thomas, along with other leading poets, including W.H. Auden, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound and William Butler Yeats, was subject of angry criticism by Graves in the 1954 Clark Lecture, which dismembered their work and reputation. Yet Dylan Thomas remained a devotee of Graves' poetry and included it in his broadcasts, readings and recordings. Thomas recorded Graves' Welsh Incident, and there are also recordings by Graves himself and of Richard Burton available. He drew on traditional Welsh poetry in his argument that matriarchal theology plays a significant role in the historical development of poetry. The central premise of the groundbreaking cultural analysis of poetry, The White Goddess, is Caredwen, a female character from medieval Welsh legend. He lived with and co-authored with the poet Laura Riding in a long relationship. She persuaded him to simplify his style and concentrate on terse, ironic poems based on direct personal experiences. A Slice of Wedding Cake Why have such scores of lovely, gifted girls married impossible men? Simple self-sacrifice may be ruled out, and missionary endeavour nine times out of ten. Repeat, impossible men. Not merely rustic, foul-tempered or depraved, dramatic foils chosen to show the world how well women behave and always have behaved. Impossible men. Idle, illiterate, self-pitying, dirty, sly. For whose appearance, even in city parks, excuses must be made to casual passers-by. Has God's supply of tolerable husbands fallen in fact so low? Or do I always overvalue woman at the expense of man? Do I? It might be so. Graves turned down a CBE in 1957 and was nominated for the 1962 Nobel Prize in Literature with John Steinbeck, Lawrence Durrell, Jean-Anne and Karen Blixen, but was rejected because the committee refused to award the prize to a poet whilst Ezra Pound was alive. However, although Pound was regarded as the greatest poet of the time, his politics precluded the award, since he was a fascist, had been an enthusiastic supporter of Mussolini, and was a rabid anti-Semite. And so Steinbeck was the recipient that year. From 1929 to his death in 1985, he lived mainly in an isolated house in the village of Dea on Mallorca. He said of it, I found everything I wanted as a writer. Sun, sea, mountains, spring water, shady trees, no politics, and a few civilised luxuries, such as electric light and a bus service to Palma, the capital. 
1963, Stuart Oleska, a young actor, visits Mallorca. Stuart, <laughs> the first private plane to land on the island was hired by Robert Graves to return there in 1946 right. after World War II. In 1963, mass tourism to Mallorca was in its infancy. Right. Uh, but how did you come to be in that remote village? Was it a pilgrimage to a poet you loved? Sort of. I'd been travelling around Europe. I was in Mallorca because I was running out of money. And it was cheaper to get a ticket on a ferry to Mallorca than a room on the mainland. Ah, so economics was the driving force there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And had you gone with some hope of encountering graves? <laughs> Not really. But when I was on the ferry, I remembered that he lived uh, in Mallorca. He lived in Dea, in fact, um, and a somewhat idiosyncratic lifestyle where he was something of a force of nature, ignoring current trends and fashions. Indeed, one could argue that he deliberately cultivated the role of neglected author. Goodbye to all that was something of a statement of intent by an embittered survivor from World War I, but it was a survivor at some cost. Graves was still living the stuff of nightmares from the First World War and the dark side of fairy tales. It was also the world of marketing, which he described in the Cambridge Clark lectures. Yes, these be your gods, O Israel. This provoked much comment from literary critics who resented Graves's attacks on their much-treasured poets, Yeats, Pound, Eliot, Warden and Thurland Thomas. Gertrude Stein's comment on Mallorca was, it's paradise, if you can stand it. Mm -hmm. so, so what happened? Well, <clears throat> I think Spike Milligan, who became the friend of Graves, uh, he made an interesting observation, a clarihue. Uh, it was about Mallorca. When Robert Graves misbehaves, he's the talker, Mallorca, overlooking the terraced hills of Dea, was a cafe where locals would meet to uh, uh, swap gossip on the veranda. I knew that Graves frequented that cafe, so I went along in the hope of at least seeing him. The first gossip swapper I came across was an American called Ralph Jacobs. He told me that he was uh, an ex-comedian. You know, I've often wondered just how one could become such a curiosity, an ex-comedian. Hmm. He wanted me to meet his friend Robert, who was, surprise, surprise, Robert Graves. Graves, now in his 70s, and he'd just been clambering over the rocks and swimming in waters much too deep for me. So he was still physically very active at that uh -huh. time. He must have made a very impressive figure. Oh, yes. Graves seemed fearless. He had a powerful presence. One could imagine him as a Roman emperor out of one of his Claudius novels. He looked at me carefully and said, in staccato English, Russian Jew. Funny you should say that, I said. No, no, said Graves. Not funny I should say that at all. He then delivered a verbal essay about Galicia, where my grandparents came from, and other countries that no longer exist. So he was able to perceive that you were of Russian Jewish heritage? Yes, 
He studied me very closely before giving his verdict. And, and how long did that impromptu verbal essay last? Oh, I would say he held forth for about at least oh, 15 minutes. Oh. It was quite extraordinary. And then he generously invited me to dinner that, that evening. Gosh, so who else came to dinner? Oh, gosh, it was a long time ago. There was, let me think, a retired customer, a couple, and their daughter, uh, a chap called Martin Good, who was acting as Graves' chauffeur, and his girlfriend, Julie Simons. The local gossip was that she, Julie Simons, was already the next of Graves' muses. And is muse a polite term for mistress? Yes, indeed. Some of Graves' grown-up children were there. He had eight, I think. Yes, eight legitimate uh, children with his two wives, didn't he? Yes. Uh, he had uh, his daughter, uh, Lucia Graves, and she was about uh, 20 at the time, and she translated Catalan and Spanish novels into English. His son, Juan, was very laid back, still a teenager. I asked him about paganism and ritual in uh, the poem to Juan at the winter solstice. Juan said it was at the time when he and all the cool gods appeared. There were also several children there. They were roughly aged between, I'd say, seven and 12. One was his son, Thomas, who was about 10 at the time, and some of the others could have been grandchildren. Oh, so what did I have for dinner? Oh, how do you remember a meal? Let me think. Ro roast lamb, lots of salads, fruit, yogurt, and local wine. And what was his house like? The house was both warm and austere. Everything was painted white. A traditional Spanish design would, with probably four or five bedrooms and low or single story. There was also a courtyard outside where a group of monks were playing music and singing. Well, that sounds amazingly atmospheric. And, and what did people at the dinner talk about? Don't forget that this was the 1960s. So we discussed politics and the Vietnam War. We also talked about the concept of fantasy in writing. Graves wasn't a fan of Tolkien because he thought it was pointless inventing myths when there were plenty of myths uh, around, uh, good, good ones already. The main topic was uh, poetry. And did Graves dominate the conversation? Yes, but he was entertaining and provocative. He wanted to provoke a reaction. He had this staccato delivery I mentioned, very, very public school. He asked his guests if they knew why Santa Claus drank reindeer's piss. And why does Santa Claus drink reindeer's piss? Ah, reindeer, you see, eat uh, Amanita muscaria, the hallucinogenic mushrooms. The digestive process concentrates the active ingredient and so allows Santa to take advantage of the byproducts. Oh, we learn something every day, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> and so did he did he talk did he talk about his work? Oh, his work, oh, yes. Yes. Particularly his research into Jewish writing. I think that was because maybe because I was there. And did you join in the general conversation? Oh yes. I asked Graves about his tastes in literature. 
Fantasy was not his particular bag. He said Charles Williams had a Taliesin kick. He declared C.S. Lewis was a monologist, like Tolkien, inventing their own worlds, and so on. He liked the poetry of Norman Cameron, Alan Lewis, James Reeves, John Skelton, John Clare, and inevitably Laura Riding. Much of the meal was taken up with graves lost in wonder at the ravishing Julie Simon. And was she very beautiful? Oh, yes, she was very beautiful. I, I, I sat next to her during the meal. Graves was a polyglot, fluent in several languages, translating French, German, Spanish, ancient Greek, Latin, but spoke Spanish or Catalan uh, with a, a marked English and staccato. And how were you treated by the others? People were genial. Uh, everyone was used to people just appearing and disappearing. The evening ended, though, rather strangely. The monks started singing the theme tune to a TV drama, a man, uh, Richard Kimball, a man pursued for a crime he did not commit, looking for the one-armed man. Oh, that's a fugitive. Oh. Uh, it was a very popular uh -huh. TV series, started starring David Jansen. Right, I remember now. Yes, it all seemed somewhat incongruous, but certainly memorable. Stuart, yeah. if there was one word you could use to describe Graves, what would that be? I'd say integrity. Neither Graves nor his father expected much wealth from their musical word hoard. Someone once commented to Graves, there's no money in poetry, to which Graves replied, Yes, but there's no poetry in money, either. Flying Crooked The butterfly, the cabbage white, His honest idiocy of flight, Will never now, it is too late, Master the art of flying straight, Yet has, who knows so well as I, a just sense of how not to fly. He lurches here and here by guess and God and hope and hopelessness. Even the aerobatic swift has not his flying crooked gift. Robert Graves was the cause of much controversy. From his groundbreaking war poetry, his sexuality, his autobiographical account of the war, his disparaging view of modernist poetry, and his theological views in The White Goddess. Stephen Spender said of him, All of his life Graves has been indifferent to fashion, and the great and deserved reputation he has is based on his individuality as a poet who is both intensely idiosyncratic, unlike any other contemporary poet, and at the same time classical. He died at the ripe old age of 90 in 1985, celebrated as a poet, novelist, biographer, author, historian, translator, critic, and classicist. A legacy of 54 collections of poems, 19 novels, including the Claudius books, and over 50 other books. It's worth mentioning here that his 1967 translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam to challenge Edward Fitzgerald's Victorian classic 
was a critical disaster which damaged his reputation. His other great failure was rewriting David Copperfield. He also rewrote the Bible. Robert Graves is one of 16 World War I poets commemorated by a memorial stone in Westminster Abbey. He was the only one still alive at the time of its unveiling in 1985. His house, La Casa de Robert Graves in Deia, on the island of Mallorca, is open to the public as a museum and is worth a trip to the Balearic Islands. For more information, visit the La Casa de Robert Graves website. Graves' work is available from the usual sources, but we urge you, where possible, to buy from local small booksellers in this difficult time. Thank you for listening. Liz Weston was talking to Stuart Aleska. Robert Graves' poems were read by David Penrose. The narrators were Josh Brown, Patrick Howe and Henry Osler. A Dead Bosch, A Slice of Wedding Cake and Flying Crooked by Robert Graves were read by permission of United Agents on behalf of the trustees of the Robert Graves Copyright Trust. For more information, visit their website unitedagents.co.uk. And our thanks to the New Theatre Royal Portsmouth for their help in making this recording possible.